Welcome to a special coronavirus edition of Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson. I'm Peter Robinson. We're trying something different because we have no choice. We're using uh, the online technology to record interviews. In the other box is my friend and colleague at the Hoover Institution, John Taylor, who is a just a remarkably eminent economist. John served on the Council of Economic Advisors under President Ford as a member of the Council of Economic Advisors under President George H.W. Bush, and during the presidency of George W. Bush as Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs. He has published academic papers that are endless and is the author of what is known as the Taylor Rule, which is a sophisticated and elegant but pretty accessible rule for when the Federal Reserve ought to expand the money supply and when it ought not to do so. But John is also, despite that tremendous eminence and the long list of credentials, here at Stanford, he may be best known and certainly best loved for teaching an introductory freshman course in economics called Economics 101. And my notion here, my request to John was if he could simply take me as a layman, as a particularly slow student, through Coronavirus Economics 101. John, thanks for taking the time to join us. You're so kind, Peter. It's great to, it's great to be with you, as always. I should note that we only live two-tenths of a mile apart, but we're here in Northern California. We're in one of the six counties that's pretty seriously locked down. That's true. And so we're, we're both six, doing this from our home. Six feet of, we're more than six feet apart. Yes, we are. <laughs> exactly. Don't sneeze into the microphone, whatever yes. you do. All right, so President Trump announces on March 15th, there are all kinds of questions about what he is legally entitled to do, what local officials can do, but he recommends and where it's appropriate for him as president to do so, he institutes effectively a lockdown, shutting down large parts of the economy. This is almost two weeks ago. What happens to the economy when people are told people in non-essential businesses are told to stay home. Well, it has an immediate impact because people are not going to restaurants, people are not getting on planes as much as they used to, people are not getting together as much as they used to. So it has an immediate impact and it already is beginning to have an impact in the month of March, really economic activity is declining. It's, it's quite understandable, right? If you're not able to buy things at stores, you're not gonna record that in your GDP. So that's the impact. Uh, it's actually because of the coronavirus, of course, that the action is being taken. But in many respects, the, the damage is from the action itself. I see. So how bad, again, I'm just asking layman questions here. I saw, um, well, I have a couple of things. I saw one bank is estimating a 20% hit to GDP, that the economy will contract 20% in one month, and that in April, when the unemployment numbers come out in April, we may see the biggest jump in un unemployment in American history. Does that sound right to you? It's very hard to estimate. Um, it's conceivable the numbers will be that large. Right? Remember, the first quarter is just finishing. It looks like it'll be somewhat negative because of the month of March, the last month of that quarter. And then we go into the second quarter. So people are talking about these big numbers kind of annual rates. And if, there's, if the virus continues, it could, it could be that way. I think that's why it's so important to try to find other ways to 
deal with the virus that don't actually end up closing markets. And there's a lot of emphasis on closing markets and not enough emphasis on opening markets. And I think that emphasis could be put forward a little more clearly. And the rationale is still there. You still stay within six feet or outside of six feet range. Right. You just find other ways to do the transactions that are more opening. All right. Now, so this brings us to what the government ought to do, the federal government. We'll start with the federal government at least. 2001, I beg your pardon, 2008, the Bush administration, now you were there, or at least you were still advising the administration, the George W. Bush administration, correct me if I have these figures wrong. Sure. But there's a, in 2008, there's a $152 billion stimulus by George W. Bush in the form of tax rebate tax rebates. People get money back. $152 billion just gets sent out to Americans. Did that help? Well, as people look at it after the fact, it didn't help really. People took that money and they saved it. It might have helped them individually, but it didn't stimulate the economy. The word stimulus was used. It's still being used. So that didn't work. And you can see lots of evidence for that. I did research on it myself. And so we're in, in the possibility of that happening again is very much there. So I think it's important. It looks like that's what they're going to be doing, paying a certain amount of money to individuals, um, medium income, lower income. I think it's important to do some extra things so that it just doesn't get stashed, stashed away. There's some emphasis on spending the money. And I think there isn't much emphasis on that now, but as soon as the bill is passed, look like maybe later today or tomorrow, some discussion of, hey, this is an important opportunity for you to take advantage of the, the extra money you have, you're getting, and spend it. All right. Which, of course, brings us to the Fed. In the 2008 crisis, help me, again, you're, on the Fed, you are one of the nation's leading experts. So I, uh, I'm sure I'll get this wrong. And if I'm asking the wrong question, just slap me around and correct the question before you answer it. But I want to distinguish very carefully between what the Fed did during the 2008 crisis and then these various rounds of quantitative easing that have taken place since the crisis. Correct. In the crisis itself, my memory, my impression is that there was a huge effort to flood the system with liquidity because the immediate concern was to keep the media of exchange open, keep markets functioning. Is that correct? Yeah, they, they did that with these special facilities, commercial paper, funding facility, et cetera. And that really kept the markets going. It, it meant, meant that people could sell their securities that otherwise wouldn't be stopped. So that was an important market opening measure. Not, not everything was done perfectly, but that was what that was at the time. And uh, there, there's similar activities that are going on now. They've got six or seven different facilities, which all have the purpose of trying to make the markets open function better. All right. And I'm trying to remember back to my Milton Friedman and MV equals PQ, but we're not worried, at least in the short term, about inflation as a result of this huge gusher of liquidity into the system. Well, I think it's, I think it's, oh, we are. To, Peter, you're right. It's important not to forget that because those are the basics of economics. And you always have to worry about what's next. That's why I think the, there needs to be a strategy. 
yes, it's important to keep the markets open, keep them running, and the Fed has a role there, sometimes called lender of last resort. But it also has to make sure that it doesn't just create so much of an increase in the money supply that the inflation is left under out of control. And it re, it's related to the deficit because the stimulus package is raising the deficit. And so we, we can't be in that mode at all times as well. All right. And then the other, again, I'm going back to Economics 101. I keep trying in my own mind as I think this through. I'm trying to distinguish between these two large categories, the real economy, goods and services, and the financial economy, which is money. Obviously, yeah. they're related, but they're not the same thing. No, they're not the same thing. And, and I think what, you, what the concern is are people will panic They'll take their money out of banks, they'll stash it away, and they won't spend it. And that's what happens if the markets are not working well. We've seen that in the past. So you want to make sure that financial side doesn't make the whole economy even worse than otherwise it would be. I, I think actually, I just met, I think some of the comparisons are useful even back at the 9-11. 9-11 was a surprise. Right. Very quickly. There was actions put together very quickly to deal with it. And I think they were, they were effective. We didn't have a big calamity. The economy uh, went along pretty well. And one thing at that time was always an emphasis on keeping markets open. We were trying to freeze the assets of Al-Qaeda and the, and the people that did the damage. But at the same time, this is an open market, open economy. So that, those went together. And I think that kind of thing was helpful then. And it could be helpful now as well. Okay. So I watched the stock market over the last week. And we get... Over the course of 10 days or so, we get a sell-off of something like a third, 30%. Huge. Although, of course, in October 1987, there was a one-day sell-off that was almost 30%. But still, nothing, we've seen nothing like this, that kind of sell-off, since 1987. Yesterday, the market goes up over 11 points, the biggest gain in 87 years. And today, who knows where it'll be when you and I stop talking, but as we're talking now, I just checked, the market is continuing to rise. Right. Alan Greenspan, when he was Fed chairman, famously criticized irrational exuberance. Was the sell-off last week irrational pessimism? What, what, no, I, to what extent is the market saying, you know, we can see the economic light at the end of the tunnel, and to what is the st extent is the market just saying, whoopee, the Fed is going to give us money, this huge gusher of fiscal activities, this huge bill is going to come through, it has nothing to do with the real economy. Those guys in New York just see a gusher of cash headed their way. I, I think it has a lot to do with the real economy. People are, are concerned about these big negative numbers that it cuts into profits, and so it's a real effect. But on top of that, you're quite right, there's these actions back and forth. There's a Maybe really positive about the Fed's move, then disappointment about the Fed moves. Looks like the budget's moving ahead, then it's not moving ahead. I think yesterday there was some, also a lot of discussion about maybe relaxing some of these constraints. Came out of the White constraints House. Constraints on the economy. Yeah, people. yeah. and that, that may be, have been a factor as well. Um, and, and certainly was in some people's minds. Okay. <coughs> it's just allergies, John. Nothing worse than okay, that. we're so, far away. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Let's... Let me take you through several of the main actors in Washington. Give me a grade. Tell me how they've done and what, they, what you wish they'd done. The Fed. The Fed under Chairman Jerome Powell. How have they done so far? They've done far. I think the initial action uh, a week and a half ago was a little um, not very well articulated. Since then, it's been... The initial action was cutting the interest rate by half. The interest rate very rapidly, yes. Right. And, and, and then... 
the, the facilities were drawn out fairly slowly, but I would say it's good, but there needs to be a better description of what the whole strategy is about. You and I are talking about strategy, how to make sure it doesn't last too long, how to make sure there's liquidity in the system, to think about what we're doing on the real economy and the financial side of the economy. I think more of that would be useful coming from the Fed. The other central banks have been doing it, but that would be the thing that I would mention now. I think on the healthcare side, uh, people made the right decisions. They're following it very closely, getting the best data they can. And I, the economic side, we talked the budget. I, I worry that some of the impacts are not going to be as strong as people hope, and that's why I want to bolster them with some things that make people spend this a little bit more, that keep the economy. How, how would you do that, John? I think it's a matter of, a lot of it is a matter of attitude. How often have you heard statements, let's keep markets open rather than take actions to close markets? But there's a lot of online stuff. Amazon's hiring people. FedEx is hiring people. And that's because there's demand for buying things online. And more, could, more of that could be done. Let's take some of the money that people will get and, and, and buy a, an exercise bike or something like that, which you can do. You can even buy a Tesla online. But more realistically, a lot of things you can do. And I would do that kind of stuff. to make So you want the president, for example, to go out on these briefings and say, look, folks, we have enacted this huge package. Please, you're doing an act. You're, yes. do, you're doing a patriotic act if you spend some of it. Yes, I would put it that way. Maybe he'd do it somewhat differently, but that's, that's the message. And, and that would make markets more open. I see. What about this? Uh, uh, as you talk, I think they're holding the votes. And it looks as though this package, they're calling it a stimulus package. I don't know what else to call it. It looks as though it's going to come in at around $2 trillion. And of course, it's laden with all kinds of nonsense. The latest item I saw, the people, there are a few people who are actually reading the bill, probably not many in Congress, but there are a few people who are reading the bill and they're tweeting about what they find. Yeah. And this $2 trillion bill, which is supposed to address the coronavirus crisis, includes $100 million for the arts, for example. Now, so how, how is it so important that we have a vast stimulus package that the president ought to sign the darn thing, even though it contains a lot of garbage and everybody knows it? Or is this so close to a repeat of what the Bush administration did in 2008, which just really didn't work, that he ought to say, no, shut it down. I'm not signing that darn thing. As long as the Fed provides a backstop to the markets and keeps the systems of exchange functioning, we're okay. So there's some things in, in the bill that are, are important. The unemployment compensation is increasing the size of that. Maybe they've gone too far, but there's some uh, lending. We've got to have that. Very troubled industries. So I think those are there. I think the, the questions I have are these one-time payments. They, they won't work unless they're bolstered by other things. And this other stuff you're mentioning, I uh, haven't read every line. Was it 1,400 pages? And uh, we, gonna be, there's going to be that. And uh, someone saying the unemployment compensation is so large, you get more by not working than working. That's obviously not good for incentives either. So um, it's not going to be perfect. I think it'd be, it'd be best if they go ahead and finish this. So the magnitudes are mind-boggling. I think when we look through the impact on the deficit, it won't be that large, but it'll be large. Remember, we already had a trillion-dollar deficit. Right. How this began. All right. Now, last sort of series of questions here are of the following nature. What do you say to so-and-so? 
All right, here's, here's one. My wife comes home from her walk this morning. She and several ladies have gotten together to go for walks each morning to keep from going crazy. I don't know what your wife is doing, but people have to do something to keep from going crazy. We're all going stir crazy. And the story is as follows. There's a restaurant, I'm sure you know the restaurant, over in Atherton. And like all the restaurants in town, it's closed because Governor Newsom told the restaurants to close down, but it's still open for takeout. So one of my wife's friends places an order and she goes over to pick it up the other evening. And the owner comes out and puts it in her hands and bursts into tears. Because it's the first order, the first business he's had in three or four days. And the guy is running short on cash. He's this close to losing his business. That's real suffering. And of course, it's happening across the country. What do you say to a small business owner who's been shut down and is running out of cash? I think the first thing is you encourage more of the actions that your wife took, right? Now, why can't more people do the takeout? So he's got more than one customer. So that's what I think that that's really going to do difference. There's also there's small business loans that are possible, but I don't think that's, that's like a, a fix it, a rubber band. The thing is to change the attitude. So people are not worried about ordering takeout and they do more of that. It's still not going to, you know, make people completely whole again to be sure, but I would look at things. That's like a market opening, right? You know, yes. the restaurant, but you're going to buy the stuff anyway. And there's lots of examples like that we could be doing. I think there's also just maybe put in a here. I think there's lots of things that we should do now that we maybe should have done in the past, but there's more of a reason. So there's a lot of occupational licensing rules out there that people can't go into certain businesses unless they take long tests and courses, even landscaping and things like that. That, that's a constraint on labor markets and a constraint on people finding other things to do. We could relax some of those. Those are, it's, it's, not, it's not a partisan issue. The Obama administration wanted to take away some of those restrictions and it's good economics. So the, I think we should be looking for those kinds of things too. It's, it is a stimulus. It's not the usual kind of spending money, but it could make a real difference. And what about payroll tax cut? What about we've talked about this $2 trillion package of money that's going to be gushing out to the American people and to businesses in one way or another. But what about cutting taxes? Is this just a hope there's, there's no room in the budget to cut taxes? What, what, what about that? It's a very good question. I, I think now the, the rebates, the one-time payments are really not cutting taxes because you get it no matter what. If there are a way to uh, reduce the, the marginal tax or at least not increase it. So here's an idea. Couldn't there be an agreement, no tax increases for the next two years, three years or something, bipartisan? Uh, one side wouldn't have trouble with that, but the other, and that would be a stimulus. That would be a great thing. You suddenly, hey, well, this talk about raising taxes, that's off the table, at least for a while. I think that if there could be some agreement about that, and maybe some of these things could be informal agreements. It doesn't have to be legislation, but right. if both sides said that, I think it'd be, people would start to listen. It could make the difference. Right. And what do you think about the public health officials? Do you, I'll, 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 I'll show my own thinking on this one. Good. All I'm doing is sitting at home trying to think this through. This is not expert opinion. I could very, very well be wrong. But I think back to the early reports about President Trump before the virus hit in full. And the press was mocking him and deriding him because he wasn't taking it seriously enough. And it looks to me as though his, his instincts were that there was a danger of an overreaction. 
And now we see him today. He gave a, an interview to Fox News, I think it was yesterday, saying he would love to get the country back to work by Easter, which is April 12th. He is chafing under these strictures that the public health officials are placing on him. And so I am just thinking to myself, if you're a public health expert and you've spent your entire life devoted to, you've devoted your entire life to saving people's lives, there's no real reason you should be expected to know much about the way the economy works. The incentives for you in, in terms of your own self-esteem and your reputation within, the reputa within, the, the, within your profession is to advise the president to shut the economy down and send everybody home because you're trying to save individual lives. And what you have in your mind is a picture of a hospital where there are all the ICU units are taken and people are starting to line up in the hallways and they're choking to death because they don't have ventilators. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But that's the, human, that's the human reaction. Whereas the president, Trump or any president, the president is the person who has to look at the whole picture and he sees, he knows what Trump, now we come specifically to Trump because he knows what it's like to, to run a business and to deal right. with contractors for whom each two week, their salary matters to people. He's used to dealing with people who have to make the rent that month or make their mortgage payments. My own, my own feeling is I'm kind of would like to see the president push back a little bit, maybe against the, they just face different incentives. The health officials aren't bad people but they face different incentives. It can't be the case that if we shut down the economy for another two months, we'll actually be doing, it could be the case, but it doesn't look to me, it looks to me as though we're running the risk of doing more harm than good. It's as simple as well, that. Well, you got, you got a very good point, and people are worrying about that all over the place. I think the healthcare officials, I mean, let's sympathize, they're in a tough situation. Medical very. healthcare workers, it's very difficult, uh, very risky. Um, so you can see why that they'd have that attitude. But I think if you have the economics integrated more with the health decisions, it'd go a long way to dealing with the problems you're issue. You don't, you, not that you want to eliminate the restrictions. You want to make them less confining, less closing, more opening. And I think there's many ways that can be do that. I'd like to see in the next edition of the 15-day message that the president put out, I think that was helpful, to have more of these things, some of the tick points, let's use some of this money to buy things. Let's find ways that people can use online messaging or online purchases more. Let's find a way now that we have more tests that people can maybe go to a restaurant or do more takeout. There needs to be more of these things in the message. And I, I'm pretty hopeful that the when the next one comes out in four or five days, it started 15 days, it's a 15 day thing, that you'll see more of that. So it's not that you want to you not that you want to override these medical uh, decrees. You want to make them work better, and I think that means the economics and the health has to work together. I would go back to the 9/11 attacks. It was incredibly frightening. Uh, the stops were all pulled out. There was talk about stopping all traffic. We had all our airlines stopped. Remember, but there was all this simultaneously. Let's not hurt the economy. Let's keep the economy going as much as we can. I think we need more of that now. Uh, and, the, and the documents and the expressions and the statements should reflect that. John, do you have any sense, even any instinct, about how long it will be before we get back to something that feels normal? 
Well, if the if we reach a peak, a visible peak on the uh, on the disease, I think it will come pretty quickly. I think people haven't seen that. They see the curve still moving up. We haven't seen any kind of a slowdown. I think when we see that, you'll be able to see light at the end of the tunnel. And some of these analogies, this we're in an incredible turbulent period. The economy is slowing down, but there's nothing permanent about it as long as we don't make it permanent so we can hire right. people back again. People can start going, give classes again. Uncommon knowledge will be in person rather than on the video. All those things will happen very quickly. We could do it tomorrow if, right. uh, if the situation changed. Right. So that was, that was, that's really sort of my final question is what is the, what is the permanent damage from this? And your, your answer is there need be almost none. I think you should think about it more positively. There may be some positive things about this. People, every day I'm getting messages, try this internet, try this idea, uh, new products. I think it's best to be optimistic here. Sorry, sorry we don't know for sure, but uh, people are rising to this occasion and they're thinking of different ways to produce, different ways to transact, different ways to work. And, uh, and it's, it's been there for a long time, but I think this may be a, a, an impetus if you like, to more of these things. And it will be better if this occurs that, that way. John Taylor of the Hoover Institution, my colleague and friend, I'm happy to say, and the legendary professor of Economics 101. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Peter.